0: Well, my dear friends, it's uh, good to see you here. Uh, this is uh, not my usual environment. I'm much more comfortable talking with some of you in my office. Uh, it's a little bit different environment. Uh, you know, I come here and it's almost like, uh, I feel like Dr. Aiken's watching me. And I don't know what that smile means, uh, I did uh, take a, a few a course in which we talked about body language, and um, yeah, we'll talk about that later, Dr. Akin. Um, so I uh, I want to begin today with a, a few uh, assertions. And first, uh, echoing um, John Frame, um, I, that all theology, uh, not just the applied theologies like counseling and missions and evangelism. Um, but all theology is actually applied. That all theology is applied theology. It's an attempt to understand what God says to us in Christ and in the scriptures about fill in the blank. Whatever you want. So we could say that theology in the narrow sense is, is an application of what the scriptures have to say to us of informing our understanding of God. We apply the scripture to our understanding of God. So even theology in that narrow sense is applied theology. Um, uh, and, you know, when you, when you read the Bible, it gives us not just an understanding of God, but um, the Bible has as much to say about people, which we tend to think of as my business in counseling and psychology, but the Bible has as much to say about people as it does about God. I recollect when I first began reading theology prior to my uh, coming here almost 20 years ago, and uh, a friend of mine gave me Millard Erickson's uh, Christian theology text, the big green monster it used to be referred to as. And, um, I was absolutely stunned at how informative that was to me as a psychologist. I had no idea that theology was going to be so applicable to what I was up to. As a psychologist. So, uh, so the Bible has as much to say about people as it does about God. Um, so uh, we do have master's degrees and a Ph.D. now here at Sabbaths in biblical counseling, we call it. Uh, and we have three of our Ph.D. students that are going to do some applied theology here today. But once again, I don't think that's as unique as it might sound. Biblical counseling, as we understand it here, is an attempt to apply the truths of the Bible and the gospel of God to, one, to our understanding of the varieties of problems that people suffer from, and then second, to inform us in our attempts to help them, to love them, converse with them in such a way that they either resolve their problems or realistically, they learn to respond to them in such a way that God is pleased, and that person and even those connected with them flourish, often in spite of their problem and sometimes because of the problem. Um, the category of, of mental illness and mental disorders, um, in, uh, for, for many of these, there there is no known cure, and uh, so uh, often people have to learn how to suffer. This is certainly something that the Bible expects and teaches us a lot about. Um, so a second assertion I want to make is that theology and pastoral ministry and counseling and psychology are inherently, or perhaps we could say in God's mind, interwoven with, with a good deal of overlap. And my reason for asserting that is that each of these academic disciplines, whether it's theology or psychology, and their corresponding practices, pastoral ministry and counseling, uh, each of these aims to understand and care for, and in some way hopes to cure the human soul. So if you read the Bible closely, it's not difficult to see that it contains its own psychology, an understanding of what makes people tick and why they do what they do. Um, although in concepts and categories that are quite different than modern Western psychology, we shouldn't expect to find the same categories and concepts there that we do in our current culture. So, you know, who could, who could read Paul in Romans 6 to 8? Or uh, what Jesus has to say in, in the Sermon on the Mount... About people and, and their hearts. And, um, or who could read the psalmist and not walk, walk away with an understanding of what makes people tick? And what makes them sing? And what makes them sin? And why do they suffer? And this is the stuff of psychology and counseling. So, a third assertion, and related to this, <clears throat> is very simply. That we believe that counseling and psychology are too important to be left to the secular world alone. Where God and gospel are omitted at worst and at best marginalized. So it's interesting when you read the especially the older, what I would call meta psychologists like Sigmund Freud and, and Carl Jung, and they were very aware of this overlap between psychology and theology and and pastoring and analysis, as they called it. So, um, Sigmund Freud uh, wrote in his book, The Question of Lay Analysis, he says, uh, the words, his quote, the words secular pastoral worker might well serve as a general formula for describing the function of the analyst. We don't seek to bring the patient relief by receiving him into the Catholic Protestant or socialist community, we seek rather to enrich him from his own internal sources. Such activity as this, Freud said, is pastoral work in the best sense of the word. Um, Carl Jung, uh, not Dr. Jung that we have here speaking a little bit, but a, a different Dr. Jung, Carl Jung said that man is never helped in his suffering body we. In his suffering, by what he thinks of for himself. Only suprahuman revealed truth lifts him out of his distress. Today, the tide of destruction has already reached us, Jung said, and the psyche has suffered great damage. That is why patients force the psychotherapist into the role of the priest and expect and demand of him that he shall free them from their suffering. That's why we psychotherapists must occupy ourselves with problems which, strictly speaking, Jung said, belong to the theologian. So uh, I know some of you are already asking, you're ahead of me, and well, I study the Bible a lot, and I can see that it has something to say about anxiety, about depression. But uh, I, 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 I don't see anything about bipolar disorder or anorexia or OCD, or ADHD in the Bible? And that's a good question. And I think there's a, at least a decent response, perhaps a good one, and I think it would go something like this. First, that uh, biblical counselors and Christian counselors and Christian psychologists believe, just like you do, my theologian and uh, biblical friends, believe just like you do that the Bible is uniquely authoritative, not just in your world, but in ours also. Um, And that as a text, it is inimitable for our discipline as well as yours. So a variety of adjectives uh, would properly describe the role of Scripture. uh, Necessary, uh, normative, uh, comprehensive, Uh, relevant, uh, sufficient, if we want to use the um, overutilized buzzword in in my world of biblical counseling. Um, But we believe, as you do, that all of life is vertical, that there is no God-free zone, that every part of life is a particular kind of worship, and that there is one with whom we have to do and from whence our help comes from. And if that's true, then to excise God from the human equation or the formula for mental disorders and their care or cure would not be a small mistake. In fact, could there be a bigger mistake than to leave God out of the psychological formula? So uh, all counseling systems, counseling theories, psychotherapy models uh, have a plan. They They have a gospel They have a plan for redemption. They have good news that they bring. And, of course, we believe that we have a plan that God has in Christ presented, a model or a system, if you will, for fixing what's broken and wrong. And that's our good news. An explication and application of what Christ has done, is doing, and will someday finally do to cure our disorders and diseases, whether they are spiritual or psychological, or even someday biological. So what sets this Christian psychology apart from the others is that the plan for change in a Christian system is rooted in something that is external to us, something that God did and does and will forever do for those who accept his diagnosis and his treatment plan. So, God's way of putting, Paul's way of putting this in the gospel is that, that we have in the gospel the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So, as my friend Eric Johnson um, says, he's a Christian psychologist, that, that we believe that the death and resurrection of Christ are the most psychotherapeutic events to have ever occurred on planet Earth. Now, that's not to say uh, that secular approaches are all wrong or that we can't learn from them. Uh, There is good in psychology. And we do believe that the social sciences, like all the modern sciences, can, by God's common or creation grace, assist us in important ways in sorting out the many ways and means by which people develop mental disorders and how to understand them and how to care for them, and how to counsel them. So this domain in which we are speaking today, of biblical counseling, overlaps and shares a lot with your field, but also with the social sciences. And we share with them a variety of basic concerns about the dynamics of relationships, about listening skills, about personal warmth and caring, about empathy, about assessment and evaluation, about the role of the body, about the impact of key relationships on people's lives, about the process of change. So here at Southeastern, what we've denominated this interaction uh, between biblical counseling and the social sciences, and we, we are calling it clinically informed biblical counseling. And what that means is that We want to affirm that which is true and helpful in the social and biological and medical sciences since God is the ultimate source of anything that is true and good anyway. So, at the same time, uh, we want to be vigilant and we recognize that, that all counseling systems have regnant authorities. They have theirs and we have ours. All counseling systems have particular authors and texts and presuppositions upon which their truth claims rest. So distinctively biblical or Christian counseling believes that our text, the Bible, is necessary to understand people and their problems, how they change and how we should love and converse with them toward that end. So our counseling framework then grants a uniquely constant to scripture to the gospel of God in Christ, and to his church. And our aim is to bring the scriptures, the wisdom of God in the Bible, the hope and life-changing power of the gospel, and the unique relevance of the church into this care and cure of souls, but in a clinically informed fashion. Um, So what I want to do today is uh, introduce uh, three of our students uh, that are doing PhDs here in biblical counseling, so, the first is uh, Dr. Yong Yung, and uh, he is going to speak first and talk with us about, uh, about spiritual warfare in counseling. And then we have uh, Virginia, and Virginia's going to talk with us about ADHD and do some of this work that I was just talking about in terms of interaction with the social sciences. And then Joshua Gallagher will speak, and he's going to address. The interaction of biblical counseling with a particular behavioral method from the secular world. So, Yo, come on up.
1: As an international student, I'm greatly privileged to speak before professors and students. Uh, Today I'm going to uh, present with the topic of uh, psychopathology and spiritual warfare. My question is how Christian counselors could biblically respond and employ a spiritual warfare perspective. The contemporary society has seen two distinct waves concerning the spiritual world. Uh, After the Enlightenment, Rationalism and Scientism have been dominating the human psyche, not just in the biological and physical sciences, but also in the social sciences. Due to this uh, region-oriented approach, naturalism has reigned in people's minds. Lewis wrote about this defective trend. Since the 16th century, the minds of men have been increasingly engaged in those specialized inquiries for which truncated thought is the correct method. It is therefore not in the least astonishing that they should have forgotten the evidence for the supernatural. In response to this overdose of naturalism, people became voraciously interested in the spiritual world through generic spiritualism and the New Age movement, etc., Facing these two contrasting views of naturalism and supernaturalism, we should avoid two extremes. One is radical rationalism, stressing reason as the means of determining truth. In this view, there is no room for the supernatural world. The other extreme is animism, the belief that inanimate objects possess a soul or spirit. People with this view, See demons in every bush. To understand psychopathology and demons, we need a broader scope spiritual warfare. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we immediately think of deliverance or exorcism. But from the biblical viewpoint, spiritual warfare is not merely a specific type of ministry, but a way of Christian living. Simply put, spiritual warfare is a constant factor is in this life, not only for some people or some problems. Another point to consider is the triumvirate structure of evil. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the ways of this world, cosmos, and the flesh sucks, and the devil Diabolo. From the biblical standpoint, we need to consider all these all together, all three all together. The problem is, unlike the first two, which are seen or noticeable, the third one, unseen devil, is hard to notice, difficult to be taken into account, and therefore deceive people very easily. In applying the spiritual warfare perspective to counseling, one crucial question is, uh, do we need a direct confrontation of demons as Jesus did? Uh, this is a very crucial question, uh, but this is a very divisive topic, but uh, most evangelicals seem to have the open but cautious view. However, even among evangelicals, there are several differences. Shem asserts there is no compelling biblical evidence for affirming such a ministry, I mean deliverance, as normative for all believers. This is not to say, however, the demons are not active in the world today. We are not here articulating a cessationist view. We would characterize our view as cautious but open. Grudem has a more open view. Jesus gives all believers authority to rebuke demons and command them to leave. If we find the sinful emotions that are unusually strong welling up in our minds or hearts, in addition to praying and asking Jesus for help, it would be appropriate for us to say something like, "Spirit of fear, in Jesus' name, I command you go away from here." Uh, to me. Uh, The issue seems to be the degree of how frequently we need this kind of ministry. Some say it is needed mainly in the mission field, but others say say, uh, we need it even in the 21st century West. Conservative Christian counselors agree that demons are real. The difference lies in how to deal with demons. Some argue that classic mode, using scripture reading, prayer, discipleship, etc. is enough. Others assert that in some cases we need deliverance. Concerning David Paulson's uh, classic mode, Clinton Arnold, the dean at Talbot School of Theology and previous president of ETS, asserts that Paulson downplays the normative aspects of what Jesus modeled for us, the ministry of the Twelve, the ministry of the Seventy, and the Paul's ministry in Acts, as well as virtually ignoring church history. We need a biblically sound spiritual warfare mode with implications for the counseling context. So my tentative surmise is, Uh, Christian counselors should employ the biblical counseling model using the classic mode. Concerning deliverance, some points need to be uh, considered. First one is, as I look into the deliverance cases in the Gospels, I notice that Jesus never intended to cast out demons for the sake of deliverance itself. His deliverance seems to be more a secondary result of the classic mode, such as preaching the gospel in the synagogue or merely being present with those who are controlled by demons. This this is contrary to some contemporary deliverance ministries with an excessive and sensationalistic emphasis on demons. Jesus did not look for demons on purpose. He just proclaimed the gospel. Evil spirits manifested, and Jesus cast out demons. Uh, this coincides with my unexpected encounter with demons a long time ago. When I was a, a novice Christian in South Korea, I shared the gospel with my friend and prayed for him. All of a sudden, uh, Evil spirits were revealed in his voice. Finally, he lost his consciousness. Honestly saying, even though I was Christian, I did not really believe the possibility. A friend of mine was under the influence of evil spirits. I did not look for evil spirits. I just shared the gospel and prayed without any expectations or mental suggestions. But evil spirits were manifest and cast out. Deliverance was a secondary result of the class mode also in my experience. Second one is we should be careful about the abuse of the performance-oriented deliverance ministry. Jesus' deliverance was rather private, silent, and short. So as of now, now I am wondering if, As evangelical theologians are, perhaps counselors should be open, of course with caution, to the possibility or necessity of deliverance mode, while basically counseling with the biblical counseling model, especially in intractable cases where the counselor still suffers even after sufficient time and efforts employing the biblical counseling model have been applied to them. In those uncontrollable cases, there might be a spiritual factor involved. A biblically faithful, theologically sound, and practically working model might be gleaned in the process of proactively and biblically engaging the spiritual warfare perspective in the restoration of psychopathology. Thanks so much for listening to me. Thank you.
2: Hello, everyone. So good to have this opportunity to speak before you. And let's go ahead and get start, started. I'm going to set myself my own little timer just to make sure I don't go too long. All right. Um, well, let's see if we can. Thank you. Well, my name is Virginia Scott, and today I'm going to speak be speaking to you on the strengths of the ADHD mind. or not. <laughs> so first of all, I'd like to tell you what the DSM defines of ADHD. The DSM-5 defines it as a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity or impulsivity that interferes with function or development. That element to which it does interfere with the daily function is key to understanding what makes a disorder a disorder. Because we all suffer from various degrees of, of inattention in our lives. But when it actually disorders us from being able to function as we should in a normative developmental way, that's when we consider it a disorder. And our diagnosis must consist of six or more inattention or hyperactive features Not quite getting it there just yet. Um, in, oh, manifesting over a period of six months. Now, in previous incarnations of the DSM-5, the hyperactive and inattentive features were separated into ADD and ADHD. Now, the two are combined as one diagnosis with ADHD, with or without hyperactivity. So if you hear, you're going to be hearing differences in how people are referencing it, depending on when they were educated in the field. So, ah, there we go. All right, so here is a list of the inattention features and the hyperactive features. You have those on your handouts. So you'll see through those, some of those will be familiar, but make sure you understand that it's outside the normative. A four-year-old's going to be hyperactive or inattentive, but that's developmentally appropriate. All right, so there are a number of negative attributes uh, associated with ADHD that are talked about often in the literature. Uh, Three of the top ones referred to is impulsiveness, inattention, and non-compliance now what does it mean if we look at these negative attributes and change the way we view them instead of as negative attributes we view them as strengths as part of the diversity of God's creation by changing the way ADHD is viewed a biblical counselor is better equipped at encouraging the ADHD counseling to use utilize their strengths while arming them against their weaknesses So instead of impulsiveness, we will replace that with spontaneity, creativity and curiosity, and the questioning of authority. Let's take a look at these. How can these be strengths? All right. So first of all, we have the benefits of spontaneity. First of all, the spontaneous person can take quick action where there are time constraints because they are not needing a long time to process through what they need to do. And so in a lot of uh, high-impact high situations, they're likely able to more take action quickly. They are more likely to act before fear can seize hold. There's nothing quite as paralyzing as fear to take us into inaction. I'm not suggesting that the ADHD person is not shy or does not have fear, but their spontaneous actions will get them, bridge them forward to start acting before the fear has stopped them. There is a social strength to being ADHD. You act as a bridge to reach out and connect with others before you shyness before self-interest keeps you from reaching out and connecting they act as a bridge builder how do they act as a bridge builder between groups of people in their need of other people they work better in groups and in that need they actually act as natural bridge builders to other people bringing them together as a unit to work together and act in a more uniform uniform not uniform unity that is encouraged in the church With all aspects of the ADHD person, we also want to help them in their weaknesses. So how would, what would that look like? What does counseling spontaneity look like? Well, they need a reliable structure to guide them. They need to have a form, a form to give them strength in that moment to fall back on so they don't have to think through. They know what the structure is of the moment. They need an understanding of their inner desires and motivations. Just as all counselors need to be more aware of the desires and motivations of the heart, once we analyze those and reflect upon their truthfulness in regards to Scripture, we can better move forward towards acting more appropriately. They need the framework of Scripture. This is something you'll find that any personality type any learning style needs the framework of Scripture but that's the structure that provides a framework with understanding the world with understanding God and with understanding themselves oh and they do need accountability just as the church loves to serve one another so what is the benefits of creativity and curiosity well the ADHD mind is possessing not so much of inattention but multi-directed attention. They are not solely focusing on one aspect, but aligned to notice all the inner and outer stimulus that arises. Creativity is not something that can be planned. It is not something that can be scheduled. And the ADHD person is more open to those moments of stimulus, those moments of inspiration. They are highly attuned to their inner and outer stimulus, and so that is going to be more likely giving them the opportunity to be inspired by ideas. Their demand for stimulation causes them to seek out, to discover, to explore, to learn about the world. Now, the spontaneity of the ADHD individual can appear to be recklessness to those who value safety above all else. However, the ADHD person may have a different set of values, which allows them to be more concerned with helping a friend than their own personal concerns. They are the leapers. So counseling creativity. What are some of the things we need to keep in mind? They need to seek out creative outlets. They need to be given the opportunity to express the creative ideas that are inside their mind that are interacting, that come from interacting with their surroundings. They flourish in flexible environments. The rigid environment of that we are doing things one way and only one way is not good for the ADHD individual. Rather, they need structure, but flexibility within that structure to be allowed to experiment, explore, and play with their environment. They need to see their creativity as a gift from God that not, doesn't make them less able to serve, but actually is something that they need to steward and use for God's service. They need to not reject unhealthy and unrealistic expectations that they put upon themselves and that others put upon them. One of the things that we all do, no matter our mind or type, is compare ourselves to other human beings. But God has created us as diverse. And it is in our diversity that we greater reflect him. Now, counseling the challenger. Well, what is the benefits of the challenger? Questioning authority. That does not seem like the most obvious strength. Well, the, they're not always challenging so much as asking why. They value understanding over efficiency. And it's in that valuing of the understanding they often act as the voice of dissent for outdated methods, for those that don't work anymore, for things that are just wrong. They will be the ones to question. They will be the ones to say, but why? Where compliance maintains the status quo, challenging authority leads to independent exploration. Uh, How do we counsel this challenger? What do they need to know? Well, for one, they need a philosophical scaffolding in order to understand why they should do what they should do. Before you can say, now do this in this way, you need to help them understand why they are doing something. What is the point? What is the goal that is trying to be achieved? They need to know when questioning ends and trust begins. John 4, 1-6 speaks to the need to question the instruction of teachers, to make sure it measures up to God's word. But it goes on to speak of the assurance that the reader has in Paul's authority. At one point we do question, but after that it is time to move on to trust. They need to trust. They need a portrait of what a trustworthy leader looks like. First John provides the framework of what that trustworthy person looks like, and ultimately they need to trust the perfect God, who is the only leader who does is not fallible, who does not commit error, the truly trustworthy leader. So, what are the benefits that the ADHD person offers to the church? Well, they help the church to reevaluate when it has been exchanging obedience for compliance and when they have been exchanging unity for conformity. They force the church to acknowledge the created differences that God has infused in his people. They, well many of us will hide the thing that we do not think that is acceptable within a culture within our church, the ADHD person will not hide. They will be very open with their behaviors. Their open need of assistance from their fellow believers reminds the church of the need each of us have for one another. And finally, they are the energetic movers and explorers who can serve as bridge builders to other cultures, sharing their passion for Christ with the world. Thank you.
3: Excellent. Again, my name is Josh Gallagher. Today I will be speaking with you on the following topic is the third time the charm? Should biblical counselors care about advances in third-wave behaviorism? Perhaps the most pressing question, and this has come to bear in our colloquium this fall, um, that's being posed inside of the discipline of biblical counseling, is how we should interact with sources of knowledge that exist outside of the scriptures. Specifically, should biblical counselors be concerned with research and theories developed by secular mental health professionals. While this issue is far from settled, my aim today is to introduce a new development within the discipline of psychology, third wave behaviorism, as an entry point into this larger discussion, and then to make some observations about how biblical counselors can both help and be helped by current developments within the larger discipline of psychology. Initially, though, you may be asking why this development is called the third wave and what in the world happened in the first two. This is where we will begin our brief journey today. Behaviorism as a psychological discipline found its origin in responding to the scientific shortcomings of psychoanalysis. While the musings of Freud and others seemed at times to align with what was happening in the real world, there was no scientific method or process standing behind either the theory or its accomplishments. Pavlov, Watson, Skinner, and others desired to bring the discipline of psychology into the hard sciences through rigorous research into why animals, including humans, behave the way that they did. The focus of these early behaviorists was on identifying and correcting problematic behaviors by developing theories and practices that would accurately predict behavior and then correct it. While their endeavors were valuable to a degree, they were largely limited in the scope of what they accomplished as the focus of early behaviorism was concerned with only behavior and didn't delve into the problematic nature of language or of cognition. Consequently, Albert Ellis, in 1958, sought to move the discipline forward and introduce the first holistic cognitive psychotherapy, initiating the second wave of behaviorism, aimed at addressing the problems of the first wave. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT, sought to address more than problematic behavior alone, and worked to develop a holistic theory that included problematic thoughts and emotions in addition to behavior. While this remains the most popular modality of therapy practice today, there are several shortcomings that our topic today, third-wave behaviorism, seeks to address. First, CBT is largely divorced from the science of cognition. At best, as Bach and Moran write, the two disciplines could be considered ships passing in the night. This leaves CBT largely uninformed by important developments in the sciences of language and of cognition. Secondly, and more importantly, CBT is built upon the premise. That merely replacing problematic thoughts with more positive ones will somehow provide the solution to the client's maladaptive cognitions. And this is where third wave behaviorism enters the scene. While comprised of various approaches and theories including acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, dialectical behavior therapy, compassion-focused therapy, and others. Each of these different theories are all part of a common wave, sharing common core assumptions that should'd be of interest to all counselors, but in particular, should interest biblical counselors. Psychology as a larger discipline, has often assumed that humans are physical and mechanical beings has rejected, or is at least marginalized, as Dr. Williams mentioned earlier, the role of God and spirituality in the counseling process, and has viewed problematic behavior and cognition as abnormal, and consequently has sought to correct these abnormalities in an effort to alleviate suffering. What should interest biblical counselors is that the third wave of behaviorism rejects each of these core assumptions. Let that sink in for a moment. Many of the battles that J. Adams and others in the early biblical counseling movement fought have now been conceded by the other side. Third wave behaviorism begins, in fact, by viewing suffering as normative in the world. We could get behind that. It rejects the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness as not particularly helpful in the practice of psychology, and in fact largely rejects reported prevalence rates of mental illness in the West. Third-wave behaviorists reject humanity as mechanistic and instead offer a form of scientific pragmatism called functional contest- contextualism as its epistemological framework. And finally, third-wave behaviorism, from its inception, has been open to hearing from and learning from all face and incorporating those findings into the core processes of what therapy looks like. With this shared starting place, should biblical counselors engage the research and theories behind third-wave behaviorism? Though some have said that the subject matter of counseling conversations is the wisdom needed to deal with life's problems, and so counseling is not a discipline that is fundamentally informed by science, but is fundamentally informed by God's word, Though that has been said, this does not mean that biblical counseling must, as a result, be uninformed by science. Third-wave behaviorism seeks to bridge the divide between CBT and behavioral and cognitive scientific advances by incorporating those advances, namely relational frame theory, into the process of therapy itself to improve outcomes. Since cognitive therapy has, as we outlined earlier, been primarily concerned with this correcting and replacing of maladaptive thoughts and emotions, their results have been mixed at best. While CBT has shown some effectiveness, its effectiveness has not significantly or consistently outperformed other therapy practices as demonstrated in multiple studies This is because, as third-wave behaviorists argue, CBT has been clinically driven and has ignored the sciences of behavior and cognition, such as RFT. This theory outlines how humans learn and think specifically the way that we think through networks of learning by addition and not subtraction. If we were to put this into a thought experiment together today, If I asked all of you right now to not think of a purple elephant, you have all just failed. Why is that? It is because we can't not think of something that has already been presented to our conscious mind, because as soon as we tell our brains to not think or feel something, we have to process through what that is to get to what it isn't. To think about this another way, perhaps to think about it biblically as Thomas Calmers wrote, in a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter that all old things are to be done away with, and all things are in fact able to become new. RFT proposes that humans do not learn through subtraction, but through addition. And it is by fixing our attention and our affections on something greater that we lose the desire to think on and feel old things. Biblical counselors can learn from these scientific insights and grow in our counseling practice by implementing empirically verified micro-skills and processes into our already biblically faithful practices. We do this not because it is necessary, but we do this because it is beneficial. I think this moment in the history of psychology and biblical counseling presents a unique opportunity for biblical counselors and secular therapists to thoughtfully engage with one another over some shared assumptions in the counseling process and to also challenge each other in areas where we might grow. As I have previously outlined, biblical counselors certainly have a great deal to learn from the practice of third-wave behaviorists. But this is not to say that biblical counselors do not also have powerful contributions to make to their counseling practice. We have a theory of knowledge that is superior to pragmatism exemplified in a person who is himself truth. Biblical counselors have a superior practice empowered by the real work of God the Spirit himself. We have a superior context for care, the church that was designed to handle the weight of all of the suffering that is faced by people in this life. So while I do not believe that third-wave behaviorism gets all of these things right, it certainly has made strides in a healthy direction and should be met by us doing biblical counseling, entering in, listening to them, doing the hard work to be heard, by engaging in research and entering into secular spaces with the gospel. All of this in the aim that the third wave would move into a fourth that is filled with the hope of the gospel. So to conclude, what would this look like in practice? Perhaps it would look like helping the person who has a sexual addiction by implementing learnings from RFT to help that person not simply plead for thoughts and feelings of improper sexual desire to go away, but instead to help them to recognize when those desires are there, remember what it is that they treasure most, and then make meaningful moves toward God, expelling sexual lust with a greater and growing desire for Christ through meaningful spiritual practices and disciplines. Though practical examples could abound here, it is my hope that through purposeful engagement with a wide variety of conversation partners outside of our own tribe in biblical counseling, that our practice would flourish to the glory of God. Thank you.